Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And we're going to look to the first church that Jesus writes this letter to, the church at Ephesus. If you're ready to dive in, would you say amen this morning? The Bible says this. I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open and ready today, and most of the verses will be on the screen as well. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you, and that Bible is our gift to you. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1, the Bible says this. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. For a few minutes today, I want to speak to this subject this morning. Where is the love? Where is the love? Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for the work that you've already done today. Lord, thank you for those that responded to the gospel in the first two services. Lord, I pray that right now you would Uh, meet with us in a special way, in a powerful way. God, we believe that you have each and every one of us here for a specific reason and purpose. And God, I pray that we would lean into that purpose this morning. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and give me the words to say uh, that would be helpful and beneficial for us together. And God, I pray that you would be glorified and magnified in our time together. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said today, This past year has been a lot of fun with my son, Luke, uh, who is seven years old, because he is very interested in watching sports. And we've always enjoyed playing sports together, but now he's really starting to learn the ins and outs of the games, and he's learning the rules and the regulations, and this makes it much more fascinating for him to watch the game. And so he absolutely loves uh, watching sports on TV. Unfortunately for us, all of our favorite teams are not doing so well this year. And so this has been kind of unfortunate for us, but uh, we were cheering for the Dodgers. It didn't end so well for the Dodgers, right? They were eliminated from the playoffs. We've been cheering for the Lakers, and the Lakers might not even make the playoffs. And so that's been disappointing. We were cheering for the Chargers, and the Chargers were eliminated a couple of weeks ago uh, from the playoffs. And my son, Luke, he takes it to heart every time. And any time one of his teams loses, he just takes it personally. And he, he can get very discouraged about that. Why? Because he absolutely loves it. He loves it. You know, love is a funny word. Uh, Love is an interesting word because we can say that we love something and mean totally different things. Uh, Love has different connotations depending upon the context. Uh, Like, I love watching the Lakers. 
Uh, I love eating Korean barbecue. Anybody with me this morning? Korean barbecue is where it's at. Uh, I I love doing those things, but that love is nothing compared to the love that I have for my wife, Katie. Uh, That love is nothing compared to the love that I have for my three children. I would uh, readily give my life for my three children. And so when we say love, often uh, we're uh, talking about different things. And and I want you to know that the love that Jesus has for you is far greater than anything that you could ever think or imagine. That the love that Jesus has for you uh, surpasses even your wildest expectation or imagination. In fact, uh, the Bible says this in Romans chapter 8. Verse 38, speaking of the love of God, uh, by the way, how many of you are interested in his love today? Anybody like that? Uh, I'm certainly interested in his love. Romans 8, 38 says this, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to know today that the greatest love that the world has ever known was seen at the place of the skull, the place called Golgotha, uh, the hill called Calvary. The greatest love that the world has ever known was displayed on a cross 2,000 years ago, and I have good news for you at the 1130 service today. Nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. I'm thankful for the love that God has for his children. It's an unimaginable love. It's an immeasurable love. This is the kind of love that, that we see in scripture. See, see, true love, biblical love, is not an emotion or a feeling. True love is not an emotion or a feeling based on circumstance or happenstance. True, true biblical love requires sacrifice and action. That's why the Bible says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. That love was accompanied with sacrifice and action. And here's what I want us to see today. Here's what I want us to understand uh, this morning. That that love that was exemplified for us is now expected of us. Are you with me today? Anybody else with me today? The love that was exemplified for us, it's expected of us. That Jesus demonstrated this kind of love so that we would replicate this kind of love to a lost and dying world. This is what we know in the book of Mark. Jesus said this in Mark 12, verse number 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, who's my neighbor? Anyone in need. Uh, Anyone and everyone is our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus did is he took the 613 Old Testament laws, and he boiled them down and narrowed them down to two. Love God and love people. You really want to focus on on following Jesus? You really want to understand what following Jesus is all about? You love God with all your heart and soul, and you love people. So many people think that religion, and they turn religion into just, you know, a list of uh, do's and don'ts and regulations, and it kind of becomes this legalistic thing where we're just kind of uh, creating more lists. Uh, How many of you uh, have recognized that we're pretty good at creating lists, right? Like, do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there, watch this, don't watch that. Uh, And we're good at coming up with lists. But following Jesus is not about creating a list. It's about concentrating on love. Because when you love God with all your heart and soul, and when you love other people, 
uh, then everything else will fall into place. And so Jesus says, hey, this is the kind of love that I've called you to. Now, uh, when we come to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, this is the message that they needed to hear. In fact, there was one question that I believe kind of adequately summarized the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus, and that question is this, where is the love? I taught you about loving God with all your heart and soul. I taught you about loving your neighbor. And the question that I have for you then is, where is the love? Now, before we jump into Revelation chapter two, I thought, you know, before we dive in, let's get our feet wet a little bit and kind of understand the context. Would that be okay with everybody today? Let's kind of understand where we are in scripture. When Jesus uh, was alive on earth, he spent the majority of his time with 12 disciples. He invested into them. He trained with them. He taught them. One of those disciples was named John. Uh, John was uh, an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. John was there and heard Jesus teach, and he saw Jesus perform miracles. Uh, John saw Jesus die on the cross, and John saw Jesus rise again from the grave. And because of that, John worshiped Jesus as God. John recognized this man is not just a good teacher or a good prophet. He is God in the flesh. And so John became a prominent leader in the early church. Many of the other apostles, in fact, all of the other apostles, died a brutal martyr's death. And they died preaching the good news of the gospel. They tried to kill the apostle John. They tried to kill him on a number of occasions. In fact, on one occasion, they put John in a cistern of boiling hot oil and tried to burn him alive. You can imagine what that did to his skin. You can imagine what John would have looked like after going through such a traumatic and tragic experience. They couldn't kill him. He didn't die from that. And so what they decided to do was to exile John on the island of Patmos. Patmos is a little island. You can look it up on a map. It's on the coast of Greece. And they send John to this little island, exiled him there. And while he's there, John meets with Jesus. While he's there, Jesus meets with John, and Jesus gives uh, John these letters to uh, the seven churches that John pens down. The first letter that Jesus gives is to uh, the ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, Now, I want to give us a little bit of context regarding Ephesus because I believe it's helpful to know uh, what Jesus writes uh, to them. And uh, I'm, I'm laying a little bit longer of a foundation this morning before we get into the heart uh, of the text today. It's kind of a, a longer runway, but it's going to be a short flight, okay? So just kind of hang with me. Um, we're, we're approaching uh, takeoff here in a second. Uh, but Ephesus was an important city for three reasons. It was an important city commercially. Uh, it was an important city because uh, there was a harbor in Ephesus that many people all over the world would travel to. And because of this, Ephesus was a very wealthy city. In fact, it was the richest city in all of uh, Asia Minor. And so uh, this was a very wealthy city, very rich city, very self-sufficient city. It was important commercially, but also it was important politically. If you study Ephesus, they had paid a tribute to Rome. And because of this, the Roman Empire allowed them to be a free city. Uh, Roman Empire allowed them to be uh, a city that kind of managed their own jurisdiction. There was no Roman troops that were stationed in Ephesus. And so because of this, they were free to thrive politically. Uh, Because of this, they made great uh, uh, city decisions that allowed them to thrive. And so this was an important city commercially. It was an important city politically, but then it was an important city religiously. The reason this was an important city religiously is because there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world located in Ephesus. That was the Temple Diana. The Temple Diana was known as, uh, Diana was really known as the goddess of sex and fertility. And if you wanted to participate in temple worship at the Temple of Diana, this massive structure, 
If you wanted to participate, you had to engage in the temple prostitution that was made available at the temple. And so this was a wicked and vile place and a wicked and vile uh, religious system that was being circulated there in Ephesus. You can imagine the impacts that that had on the surrounding city. And so this was a very important prominent city. And right in the middle of this very important prominent city was a very important church. Uh, And this was the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was founded by, uh, the church of Ephesus was founded by Paul and uh, many famous religious leaders. How many of you uh, remember in the book of Acts, you have Aquila and Priscilla, if you remember them, and uh, Apollos, and uh, these uh, were ministers in Ephesus. Uh, You have um, Timothy, who was the pastor at Ephesus. So very prominent leaders, very prominent figures located in Ephesus. In fact, we don't know this to be true, but many commentators say Jesus' mother Mary attended church in Ephesus. Can you imagine being the pastor delivering a Christmas sermon with Mary in the audience? I mean, that would bring it to a whole new level, right? And so this was an important city. There's an important church in this city. And Jesus writes a letter to this church. I wonder if Jesus wrote a letter to Rock Hill Church, what would he say? What would he commend us for? What would he correct us over? What would he caution us about? See, Jesus writes a letter to a real church, a real congregation that read these words in their midst. And Jesus offers a word of commendation. He offers a word of correction. And I believe there's much that we can glean from it today. And so now with that understanding in place, let me give you three elements to this text. Would that be all right today? If you want to jot a couple of these things down. Number one, we see that Jesus examines their reputation. So the first thing that we see is Jesus is going to examine the reputation of this church. Now, Let's look at uh, chapter number one and verse number 20, because there's a couple terms we need to define to help us understand these letters. And so chapter one, verse number 20, if you're with me, would you say amen? amen? It says this, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. Now there's some symbolism in Revelation, and I think it's important to kind of identify what some of these things are. And so he talks about the seven uh, golden candlesticks, and then he says this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angels there means messengers. Most generally believe that he's talking about the pastors, the leaders of the churches. And so he says the seven stars are the seven angels. Uh, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. And so very simply, uh, when you read about the candlesticks in Revelation 2 and 3, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the churches in Asia Minor. Everybody track with me so far? Now, notice verse number one of chapter two. With that in mind, he says, unto the angel, or the messenger, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches, and he is observing, and he is paying attention to what is going on. By the way, I'm thankful that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in our midst today, that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in our culture today, uh, that Jesus is not surprised at the events that are taking place. And so Jesus is walking through the midst, and he's observing this. And he says, I am the one that holds the seven stars in my right hand. Did you see that in verse number one? Now, I I believe that this was a dig at the Roman emperor Domitian, who was leading at this time. And I love this because uh, Domitian was the Roman emperor when John wrote this in the book of Revelation. And Domitian, as the Roman emperor, he declared himself to be, at this time, he declared himself to be Lord, God, and Savior. How many of you would say that's 
problematic. Would you agree with me? Okay. He declared himself to be Lord, God, and Savior. Now, it was not uncommon for Roman emperors after they died to declare them deity, that, that they would just say, oh, they lived on and they were a god. But to declare yourself while you're still living, Lord, God, and Savior, this is very problematic. And I believe Jesus is addressing this because uh, he mentions the seven stars. Domitian, the Roman emperor, he put his face on the coins in the Roman Empire. And one of those coins was this coin. I think we have a picture of it today. He's sitting on a globe, and surrounding the globe are seven stars. And so when Jesus writes about the seven stars, literally the people in Ephesus had coins in their pocket with seven stars on them. And I believe what Jesus is saying is this. Hey, Domitian might say that he is Lord God and Savior, but he is a counterfeit. I am the one that holds the seven stars in my right hand. The right hand is always significant of power. Jesus is saying, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. I am the true Lord God and Savior. I'm thankful today that we worship the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and there might be others that want to claim deity, but Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And so he was reminding the church of Ephesus, who really holds the power? Uh, They might have thought, we are under the foot of the Roman Empire. We are under their jurisdiction, but Jesus is saying, I am in control. I am the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is walking through the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, the churches. The first church is Ephesus. Now, he is going to deliver a word of commendation to Ephesus. You know, a good leader uh, will always connect before he corrects or, or, or uh, you know, relate and, and, and give a word of praise before the correction comes. And Jesus does this. He gives a word of commendation. And he commends the church of Ephesus for three things. And I think that these are things, things worth emulating. Are you interested in what they are today? The first one is he commends them for their service. Now, notice what it says in verse number two. He says, I know thy works. I know your works in your labor, in your patience. Jesus said, I've observed, I've been walking in your midst, and I've seen that you are serving, that you are laboring, that you've been patient, uh, that you have been uh, busy doing the work of the ministry. In other words, here's what we need to know. The church of Ephesus was not a lazy church. Uh, They were busy serving the Lord. They were busy with Christian energy and activity. They were doing uh, all of the right things, and Jesus commends them for that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, There are also working Christians who do not approach to laboring. Yet a lifetime of such work as theirs would not exhaust a butterfly. Now, when a man works for Christ, he should work with all his might. Can I tell you that serving the Lord uh, was never in the Bible told to be an easy thing? Now, 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 his burden is easy and his yoke is light, uh, but we recognize that the work of the ministry is a good effort. It's a good work. He who desires the office of a bishop or wants to be in the ministry desires a good work. Uh, no one ever said that it was going to be easy, and I believe that if we're going to change the Inland Empire uh, by the power of the gospel, it's going to take some followers of Jesus at Rock Hill Church that aren't afraid uh, to uh, get busy serving and laboring together for the glory of God. I'm thankful that at Rock Hill Conference, we had 167 adults serving the Lord last weekend. I'm thankful to be in a place where uh, we believe that serving is not something that we want from you. It's something that we want for you. Because when you're serving, you're seeing. When when you're serving, you're seeing things that other people are unable to see because they're watching from the sidelines. And so uh, the church of Ephesus, they were commended for their service. They were doing a great job. Uh, But then Jesus commends them for their separation. Now, notice it in verse number two. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. 
Jesus commends them. He says, you know, all the evil that's taking place down the street at the temple of Diana, all the wicked prostitution, all the immorality, the infidelity, the adultery, all the wickedness that is being uh, permeating uh, throughout the culture, um, you can't bear them is what he's saying. He's saying you aren't engaging in that. In other words, the church was not engaging in sinful activity like the culture was doing. So often the church wants to be like the culture, and we want to get close to the culture. But what Ephesus said was, no, that's sin. That's wickedness. I'm going to separate myself from that. Can I just remind you as followers of Jesus, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And that as followers of Jesus, there should be a little bit of separation from the world. It doesn't mean that we have to go and and live totally in seclusion or isolation. uh, But it does mean that uh, we're going to have a different uh, perspective than the world. That we're not going to be conformed or patterned our life after the things of this world. And that's what Ephesus was doing. They were doing a great job. And Jesus commended them for their separation. But then he commends them for one more thing. Thirdly, he commends them for their stand. I want you to see it at the end of verse number two. He says, you can't, how thou canst bear them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them that say that they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Now, this is very important. Everybody with me today? Because this is so important for the church in 2023. There will be people and leaders and pastors that you see on social media and on TV that sound good, but you have to make sure that you are weighing the words and looking at the words through the lens of scripture. Is what I'm hearing aligning with the word of God? What did the church at Berea do in Acts chapter 17? They heard the words that were spoken, and then it says they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. We want to see what the Bible has to say, because there will be leaders that want you to question the validity of scripture. There will be leaders that want to question, do we really have to believe what the Bible says? Is that really something that we follow, or is that just kind of an ancient you know, history book? By the way, uh, the very first temptation from Satan all the way back in the garden was to get Eve to say, yea, hath God said? Did God really say that? Wait, what about this issue? Does, I don't know, does the Bible really say that? Do we really have to adhere to that? See, that was taking place every day in Ephesus, but the church was commendable because they were saying, you know what, we're going to search this out, and we're going to find them. They're heretical, they're liars, and we're not going to adhere to that. And so I think it's very important, I believe it's very important for us as a church today uh, to recognize that God has called us to take a stand for truth. In fact, uh, the Bible says that we ought to withdraw from a brother that walks disorderly. A brother, the idea there is a Christian that if there's a Christian uh, that starts to teach something that is uh, opposite of God's word or starts to drift off and get other people to be pulled into that sin, then it's our responsibility to lovingly, it doesn't mean we have to be mean about it, but we lovingly withdraw ourselves from a brother that walks disorderly. And so Ephesus was doing a great job. They were serving the Lord. They had all the right books on the shelf. They were having all the right pastors come to the pulpit. Uh, they were preaching. They were teaching. They were standing for truth. And so Jesus commends them uh, for all of these things. But this leads us to our second thought today because not only does Jesus examine their reputation, secondly, he exposes their reality. Now, we have to be very careful because Jesus will always expose the reality. I want you to know today that Jesus knows what you do. Are you with me today? Jesus knows what you do, but more importantly, he knows who you are. And we can be busy doing all the right activity and serving, and our heart is far from God. And so Ephesus was doing the right things, but their heart was not in the right place, and Jesus is going to expose the reality. You want to see what he says? Notice it, verse number four. He says, 
Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Ephesus, you're doing so good. You're serving and you're separating from evil and you're standing for truth and you have the right head knowledge, but you know, want to know what their problem was in Ephesus? They weren't loving like they used to. They weren't loving God and they weren't loving people like they used to. And so Jesus says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee that you have left your first love. They were all head, no heart. You know, some people are either truth people or love people. Have you noticed that? Uh, sometimes we can lean one way or the other. That uh, One person is a truth person. They're very black and white, and uh, they're just, they just see how they see it, and they're going to beat you over the head with it, and they're going to make sure that you know and that you hear about it. How many of you know a truth person? How many of you are the truth person? Okay. So we have truth people, and then sometimes we have love people. And love people are like, you know what? Let's not step on anyone's toes. Let's not offend anybody uh, because, you know, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So let's just kind of lean towards love. Here's the problem. You ready for the problem? Jesus called us to do both. Speak the truth in love. One of the most unloving things that you can do to someone is not tell them the truth. When I go to the doctor, I want to make sure that the doctor is telling me exactly what's wrong with me. Right? Like, I don't want to just shoot the breeze and talk about the weather. I want you to tell me, am I sick or not? Even if it hurts my feelings, I want to know what the truth is. I think it was Warren Wearsby that said that love without truth is hypocrisy. And truth without love is brutality. And so there has to be this balance where we're speaking the truth in love. Ephesus had all head. They had it all right, but no heart. Jesus says you're not loving like you used to. You know what happens after you serve in the same place for a long time? See, the church of Ephesus was faithful. I mean, they had an impact. You can read in church history. I mean, Ephesus made a huge impact. And you know what happens when you serve in the same place for a long time? Over a, over a period of time, you start to get tired of all the evil that's taking place. You start to get tired at the city in which you're in. Like, like the people in the church of Ephesus were just tired of the temple, Diana. Uh, they were tired of the sin. They were sick of the politics. They were sick of all the wickedness. And in the midst of all that, they forgot to love the people that they were surrounded by. They didn't have the wrong books. They didn't have the wrong preachers. They just weren't loving. And Jesus says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. You've left your first love. And he's exposing the reality. Now, in verse number six, we kind of give a, a glimpse of this. Notice verse six. Let's skip verse five. We'll come back to it. Verse number six. He says, but this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so Jesus says, hey, you're, you're hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which is a good thing. Jesus also says, I hate, the, hate those deeds as well, which those are pretty strong words. And, and that means that we have to recognize something today. We have to recognize that there are sheep, there are shepherds, and there are wolves. And the wolves want to infiltrate the church and spread false doctrine and spread uh, things that will destruct, uh, destruct and to destroy the church. And, and so uh, there were wolves that were present in Ephesus, the Nicolaitans. Now, uh, we'll talk about them more in the coming weeks, but basically, just so you can kind of wrap your mind around it, the Nicolaitans kind of subscribe to this uh, Epicurean philosophy or this hedonistic philosophy that says, I can just kind of do whatever I want. I can live however I want. Um, I'm thankful that, that Jesus saved me and you know, his grace, he'll just forgive me anyway, so I can just kind of just... Uh, uh, sleep with whoever I want, have whatever kind of relationships I want. That was uh, what the Nicolaitans were subscribing to. By the way, you can see how the culture infiltrated that belief system. 
Since the culture in Ephesus was filled with temple prostitutes and all kinds of immorality, uh, now the church is all of a sudden kind of uh, justifying their behavior, those deeds of the Nicolaitans. And, and so uh, the church of Ephesus, they, they were com- commendable, though, because they said, you know what, uh, we hate uh, those deeds of the Nicolaitans, which was a good thing. But Jesus was saying, you're not loving the sheep and the shepherd. You're, you're, you're failing to love. You're identifying the error, but you're not loving in a way that I've called you to. Now, I believe that there's a verse that kind of adequately describes this, and I want to share it with you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm going to ask Matt if you, if you can come up for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 1 says this. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am becoming as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, a clanging, loud, annoying symbol, okay? Uh, that's what Paul's saying. If we have all the right answers and we have the right uh, knowledge and we know the right words to say, but if we don't have love, like a clanging symbol. Now, I'm thankful for our worship team. Aren't you thankful for our worship team? I'm thankful for our uh, audio-visual team. Aren't you thankful for the sound guys back there? And I can tell you, Matt's our drum. Aren't you thankful for Matt as well, drumming every, every week? And we're constantly trying to evaluate um, the sound in this room and the acoustics in the room. And, you know, sometimes depending on where you sit, uh, certain seats, certain instruments can be louder. We're kind of trying to take all that in. By the way, if you have a complaint about this, you can email our complaint department. It's seth at rockhill.church. Just go ahead and send that email, and he'll make sure to take care of that right away. But we're constantly trying to um, evaluate, you know, the acoustics in the room. And, and sometimes we've noticed that the cymbals on the drums can be loud. Matt, show us how loud those cymbals can be. That's pretty loud, right? Uh, how many of your ears hurt after that a little bit, okay? And it can be pretty loud. And this is what, this is what Paul is saying when he uses this uh, clinging symbol illustration. Matt, just play those for a second, okay? If you're teaching the truth and you're saying, hey, you need to believe this and you need to go here, and, hey, make sure that you're reading this and reading. Do you see how I can be saying the right things, but if I don't have love, it's just making noise. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that you can be saying the right things, reading the right books, teaching the right doctrine, but if you are not loving people, you're just making noise. And so he says, he goes on in this, he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy, thanks, Matt, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Do you see that? Did you see it? The faith to remove mountains? Anybody interested in that kind of faith? Even if you have that kind of faith, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if you're the most generous person in the room, and though I give my body to be burned, I'm willing to die a martyr's death and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Do you see how important love is? Love is the motivation for everything that we do. Uh, It's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. And Jesus was telling Ephesus, you're doing great. These things are commendable. Uh, A plus but you're failing in love. Now, Jesus explains or exposes the reality. Then I want you to see thirdly today, and we'll be done. 
And this is good news. Jesus explains the remedy. I'm thankful that whenever there's a problem, whenever we get off track, that Jesus offers a solution, uh, that he offers a remedy. Aren't you thankful for that? that, that Jesus says, okay, you got off track. Maybe you're not loving like you should be. Maybe you're not doing uh, what you're supposed to be doing, but let me explain a clear-cut remedy of how you can get back on track, and I want to explain these uh, today, and we'll be done because uh, Jesus makes it very clear. It's a very simple uh, process that Jesus says that we have to engage in. Uh, three things, and we'll be done. Uh, the first one is this. If you want to uh, remedy uh, the situation, you have to remember. You have to start with remembering. Notice verse number five. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. And so it starts with this. We have to remember from whence we are fallen. Now, memory is a very powerful tool. Uh, memory is a powerful force. Do you remember when the prodigal son was out living a riotous life in Luke chapter 15, and he was spending all of his inheritance? There came a moment when the Bible says that he came to himself, and he remembered what life was like with his father. He remembered how good it was when he was back home with his family. He, he remembered in that moment. I want you to know, if you want to get back on track, the first step is to remember how good God has been to you. It's to remember the goodness of the cross and to remember how Jesus defeated sin, death, and the grave and remember what your life was like before Christ. This is why we celebrate communion so that we would remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Aren't you thankful today for how much he loves you and how much grace he's bestowed upon you and how many chances he's given you? remember from whence thou art fallen. How many of you tend to be forgetful people? Anybody like that? Um, sometimes I'll forget to take the trash out on trash night, and it's always a bummer that whole week because then I'm trying to constantly squeeze all the trash into one bin. I'm jumping up and trying to uh, you know, slam it down. It never quite uh, works right. You know, It's not good when I forget to do that. Sometimes we can be forgetful people, and I want you to know, sometimes following Jesus, we can be so focused on what we have going on that we forget about the goodness and the grace of God. And the first thing that Jesus says to do is to remember. 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 By the way, I think it's fascinating that in verse number four, he says, somewhat, I, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee that you left your first love. I, I've, heard this, I've heard this text preached many times in my life, and many times I've heard people say, don't lose your first love. You lost your first love. Can I just tell you that's not what the text says? It doesn't say they lost their first love. It says they left their first love. When you lose something, you don't know where it is. You can't find it. When you leave something, you know how to get it back. That's why Jesus says, remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember what your life was like when you first accepted Jesus Christ. And you were so excited to talk to other people about your faith. And you were so excited to read your Bible. And you were so excited to pray. And you were so excited to share your faith. Uh, remember where you left it. Identify where you left Identify the first works. Identify the things that you used to do for Jesus out of a spirit of love. But you're not doing them anymore. He says, remember. And then here's the second step. Okay, so we remember. The second step is we repent. Notice in verse number five. He says in verse five, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Now, this is so vitally important, and I hope that you'll catch the heart of this today, because we're living in a church age in 2023 where many pastors and leaders are teaching a gospel that doesn't include any sort of repentance. In other words, what that means is, just add Jesus to the shelf and you'll be okay. Like, in other words, live however you want and just sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus and you'll be just fine. 
But Jesus does not just deserve to be a part of your life. That the Bible says in Colossians that in all things he might have the preeminence. The, the very first, the, 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 uh, the rightful position in your life. And so what we have in our culture today is a gospel without repentance where you can just kind of, you don't have to turn from your sin. You don't, have to, you don't have to give anything up. Jesus said, count the cost. Deny yourself. And here's what the word repent means. It means a change of mind accompanied with a change of action. In other words, I'm going this way. I repent, and so I take a 180-degree turn, and I start going this way. Here's why that's important. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. Sometimes we feel bad about what we've done. We feel bad about our sin. We feel bad, and ooh, I probably should say sorry to that person. I probably should, you know, decide to love that person. You know, we can have a sorrow, but the Bible talks about in Corinthians, it's not just feeling sorry or having a sorrow, but it's a sorrow that leads to repentance. It, it, it's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. And so Jesus is saying, if you've got off track, you've got to remember from whence thou art fallen. You've got to remember where it is that you left it and go back and repent and turn and give it to the Lord. So you remember, you repent, and then here's the third step that Jesus gives. This is Jesus' outline. This is his sermon. I'm just copying it. Jesus says, Remember, repent, and then repeat. Repeat. Notice it in verse number five. He says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Do the first works. What is he saying? Repeat. Repeat the process. <laughs> so you remember those things that you used to do for Jesus, those things that you used to do when you were in love with God and in love with God's people. Uh, remember those things, repent, and then repeat the process. Start doing them again. Start reading your Bible again. Start praying. Start inviting your neighbors to church. Uh, start being involved. Start serving. Hey, remember where it is that you left it, and then start serving the Lord again. Uh, start loving again in a way that God has called you to love. And so we remember, we repent, and then we repeat. Now, I'm going to read two more verses this morning, and we'll be done. And as I read these verses, would you join me in standing today? I want you to see verse number seven of our text. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In other words, you better really be paying attention and listening to what God is trying to communicate to you. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. How... Foolish would it be for us to hear the word of God and leave this place and do nothing about it? James talked about that. He said, that's like a man that looks at a glass beholding his natural face in a mirror and then leaveth and he leaves and he doesn't change anything about it. It's like waking up in the morning. How many of you, when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, there's something you want to change? All right, seven of you. When we look in the mirror, we're like, man, we've got to change some things, right? And James says, when you look into the mirror of God's word, there ought to be some things that you take a look within your life and say, okay, you know what? I need to steer in this direction. I need to, I need to repent of this. I need to move on uh, from this. And so Jesus says, he that hath an ear to hear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, listen in. Don't tune this out. Don't practice selective hearing. You've got to listen in. Verse 7, to him that overcometh, Overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. I, I love this word, overcometh. It, it carries the idea of victory. Can I just tell you today in the 1130 service, this is really good news, 
that whatever you are facing today through the power of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit, you can get the victory. Whatever sin it is, whatever struggle it is, you can get the victory. The victory is ours in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The victory is attainable. Romans 6 says, sin shall not have dominion over you. I don't know who needs to hear that today, but you need to hear it. Sin is not your master. You can get the victory, not in your own flesh and how strong you are, but in the strength and the power of the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives within you. You can get the victory today. You can be an overcomer today. The victory is ours through Jesus Christ. And he says, he that can overcome. And then the last line of verse number seven, he shapes our perspective. And, and he really wants the church of Ephesus, and by extension, he really wants us to consider this today, verse number seven, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What is he talking about here? He's talking about heaven, paradise. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He's saying, you know, consider why what we're talking about matters. Why should we love our neighbors? And why should we love people uh, in our community? And why should we demonstrate this kind of love? Because eternity is a long time. And because heaven is a real place. And it's our responsibility to go and to reach people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus so that they too can encounter a relationship with God and have a home in heaven. And so he says, change your perspective. Think on eternity. Now, this is exactly why Jesus went to the cross. John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love. Greater love. This is the greatest love that the world has ever known. It's a greater love. A greater love. No matter how much you love a certain food, no matter how much you love a certain sport, uh, it's a greater love. The love that I have for my spouse, the love that I have for my children, it's a greater love. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The greatest love that the world has ever seen was displayed on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Jesus demonstrated this kind of love so that we could have a home in heaven. He exemplified it for us, and now he expects it of us. The two most important things Jesus said we must focus on, love God and love people. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.